0: Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max Cantor, and today on the show, I have a la-based stand-up comedian she's the winner of portland's funniest comedian she's been featured at multiple festivals and shows including the san francisco Sketchfest and doug loves movies she co-hosts the who's your god podcast and also appeared and was a semi-finalist on season nine of nbc's last comic standing so please welcome to the show amy miller welcome to the show amy hey how's it going now nice amy, to talk to you amy this is totally true um you know, we originally sat down or we didn't sit down, but we had scheduled to do an interview way back in April And because of conflicting things. It it just never worked out to hear. I've had that intro on my computer since April because I believe <laughs> I, be- I knew I knew it would happen. And so I just never deleted it. And so my introductions for all my different guests are all on the same page. On my computer. But once I interview the guest, once I do their write up and publish the show, I typically delete it. But I've had yours, Amy. I've had yours <laughs> for, <laughs> well, for months I'm glad now. it
0: finally worked out. Um, I'm always on the run. So,
1: yeah, that's, for patience. that's totally fine. I'm glad to have you here. I'm excited to talk to you. You've done a lot of stuff. And so that's what I'm excited to talk to you about and how you've done it all. Uh, so to get started, I just want to ask you, you know, growing up, what type of late night talk shows or just television in general influenced you and in your comedy?
0: Um, I mean, a lot of different television for sure, but I was always a late night kid. Um, I've never been a great sleeper, so yeah. I'm really dating dating myself here, but You know, obviously, Carson was my earliest. I mean, that also tells you kind of how young I was staying up that late. Um, But Arsenio was huge for me. And then, you know, Letterman's my favorite of all time, for sure. I I went to uh, the second-to-last taping of his show a few years back. Wow. Um, yeah, he's just, he's always been very, very special to me.
1: So that, that's very interesting. You mentioned going to a late night taping. Cause you're my first guest who I talk about late night with, with every comedian I have on. That's why the show's called talking late night. We are the first one that's ever, you know, uh, sat in the studio audience. I've had guests who worked backstage in the shows, but never just observed it. So describe to me what was that feeling like with letterman's second to last show the end of an era concluding what was the feel in the audience and also what do you think the feel was in him
0: um i well it was my second time going i had gone to a different letterman taping probably six years earlier when i was in new york um and you know the feeling was definitely very different because it was, as I said, the second to last show. And so it's just crazy guests. And, you know, I saw Bob Dylan, Bill Murray, but it was also the goodbye to Rupert um, and Hello Jelly. So that was very touching, very sad. I mean, I don't know what his feeling was. He seemed pretty normal. He seems like someone who always kind of played everything pretty close to the chest. Mm-hmm. So, um,. You know, I mean, we saw him get a little bit emotional in those final episodes, for sure. The night I was there, um, it was nothing too crazy, but the audience was definitely a lot of real kind of longstanding fans, because uh, there were several hoops you kind of had to jump through to get these tickets. Um, so yeah, it was really special to me. You know, one of, a very big goal for me to get on that stage at some point, and that's, kind of something I'm working on so Mm. yeah next I mean I'd rather be there than watching the taping for sure
1: Yeah, right and you mentioned that your three big late night people would be Carson, Arsenio and Letterman so looking at all three what do you think in your opinion that all three of them had in common that attracted you to them
0: I think there's kind of just a raw charisma and I would almost say even like a swagger that they have that in my mind, like someone like Jay Leno never had. I mean, I, I was never a fan of his show. I just Mm. really couldn't stand the way he talked to people. And I feel like, um, I don't know, there's just sort of a confidence and a kindness. I know it's, it's a weird thing in my life now, but I sort of know Arsenio. I've worked with him a few times and that's, pretty nuts to me, given how much time I spent watching him late night as a kid. Um, Mm -hmm. But he, as a person, is just very sweet and open. And I mean, it's almost like a really specific superpower. I think there's like a handful of famous people that seem to have it. And a lot of them end up having their own talk shows because they're, you know, specifically kind of in tune with people. I think like RuPaul is a good example of someone Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, you know, there's a million names, but um, I think that's something that they all kind of shared was just, like, being a star without taking the attention from the guest um, and kind of, like, it's like a confident humility almost Mm -hmm. um, that I think that they mastered more. You know, and I think Conan for sure has it too. Um, But, you know, I think Letterman was kind of the peak of that for me, of pulling off this sort of, like, awkward kind of bumbling nerd character even though you kind of knew it wasn't true because he's you know what seems to be one of the more confident people but it's been interesting watching his Netflix series for sure because he's so out of context and out of his comfort zone and you kind of get a glimpse into what he's really like you know outside of the late night show Mm -hmm. um but yeah I think it's just kind of a just kind of a openness and confidence
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, all three people you just described, they do just radiate the self-confidence. And I think, I think you bringing up RuPaul was a excellent example, because it's all people who just are confident in who they are. And then when they're confident in themselves, I feel like we trust them more. You you get what I'm saying? Because if they, you know, they trust themselves, so we can trust them more easy.
0: Yeah, and there's a vulnerability there, too. Um, And I think... Something that was really interesting with um, Arsenio, and to some extent I think Letterman did this with musical acts and kind of like new bands that were about to break, but something interesting and interesting in the late 80s and early 90s with Arsenio is that he put a lot of people on his talk show that hadn't really done other shows yet. Like, you know, he put a lot of rappers on, and like Mainstream America wasn't yet that exposed to them. You know, he had like Easy e on his show, and he had all the professional professional wrestlers on the show. I think he sort of had his finger on a pulse that the other late night talk shows were sort of missing because they were really busy catering to like a specific demographic of mostly like older professional white people probably. (laughs) Right. Uh, And he kind of tapped into this thing that worked really well. and, And I think kind of, the ball rolling for a lot of the other late night shows to pay attention to like, Oh yeah, we should be following this rap thing. It might be a big deal, you know?
1: Right. And I mean, Letterman did the same thing. Cause uh, in a, in a slightly different way where his stuff was just weird, he was just doing weird, outrageous things. And I mean, nowadays, like he was so influential. Anytime you see a sketch on Conan or on Kimmel or Fallon, you can in some way track it back to something David Letterman did at some point in his career. So it's the new and just being self-confident and saying, you know what, we're going to do what we want to do and what the people want to see, not what the network is demanding us to do.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's not a coincidence that um, so many or most of those folks start as comedians. I think there's kind of like a silliness factor and a commitment to the bit that you need to have to think a little bit outside of the box on late night. And I think that all those guys definitely
1: had it. Mm-hmm. So you were watching these shows as a kid growing up, did their confidence and their willingness to try new things, did that influence your comedy? Like as a kid, were you more self-confident than you feel like you would have been otherwise if you hadn't been watching late night? Uh, It's an
0: interesting question. I mean, I've always felt I mean, I think it probably made me a little bit precocious, but I think staying up all night as a child would do that to anybody (laughs) because you're kind of tuned into this whole other life that other kids at school aren't seeing. Probably watching a lot of stuff I should not have been seeing, but um, you know, I've always been a kind of night person, a very anxious person, and you know, someone who doesn't sleep well. So I did feel like I kind of, I don't know about my comedic sensibilities. I'm sure that It affected them in some way. Um, You know, I didn't start comedy until I was 30. So I wasn't like a kid sitting around thinking that I was going to be a comedian one day. Um, It had never crossed my mind ever. Um, You know, I had dreams of maybe having a talk show but had no idea how that would ever happen because I had horrible stage fright and I was a really shy kid. Um, But I think it definitely informed just my general sensibilities because I was sort of like aware of all this stuff that, you know, other kids at my school weren't just cuz I was up all night and fucking <laughs>
1: watching Johnny Carson or whatever <laughs> right so if you didn't get involved with comedy till you were 30 up until you turned 30 were you involved in, in any way with any type of performing or arts or anything in that community
0: i was um so i'm was a choral singer for many years um classical soprano and I sang in professional kind of paid choirs for years and years through college and into, you know, between 20 and 30, actually a little bit after I started comedy too, but then it just got too difficult to to kind of juggle both. And it's something I still really miss a lot. Um, There's something really specific about the experience of singing with other people and harmonizing with other people, especially if it's, you know, really difficult music, the way that it exercises your brain is so specific just to read the music while coordinating with all these other humans. It's a very, um, I don't know, it's a particular sensation that I miss for sure. Um, having said that, it was almost always like in a choral setting where I was with other people. So I still kind of had my age ride and wasn't too excited about you know, going out on my own and performing mm-hmm. alone. And that's part of the, one of the reasons I dove into comedy was to kind of get over that fear. Um, so the couple years that the two overlapped was interesting because then all of a sudden this choir director I had worked with for years, you know, I'm like, Oh, I want to do some solos. And he's just like, what? Like yeah. you've never asked for this. Um, Cause I was kind of getting that confidence from performing alone and realize that like there's almost nothing scarier than doing comedy so singing should be (laughs)
1: fine when you jumped into comedy did you jump into stand-up immediately or did you try improv and writing uh what was your path in comedy
0: um i mean i've always kind of been a writer and i guess some of that was comedic but yeah my path was just going straight into a stand-up open mic at a laundromat in san francisco and uh yeah just kind of jumped right in like I definitely spent a few weeks, maybe a month kind of thinking about jokes, you know, obsessing over what I would even say if I got up there um, and thinking about what kind of material I want to do. But other than that, I just kind of got up and it's really the only way to the only way to do it i mean i guess a lot of people start with improv but that wasn't something i really knew much about or you know had much interest in so i just went to an open mic
1: why do you think um i know you said you don't you didn't have much interest in it but why do you think uh you went from performing in in a choir so that's like all ensemble based working as a team all together like you were saying everyone's working together to create the music and instead of picking for your comedy world an improv Pathway where it would be the same thing working with an ensemble you chose to go by yourself Was it to push yourself or what What was the reason?
0: It was yeah, I mean I was in the middle bit of the middle of a little bit of a life crisis mm. um, as I think a lot of people get to when they're turning 30 um, and It was just something that scared me so much. I wanted to jump into it and it was like the craziest thing that I could imagine doing and then I didn't expect to keep doing it. I didn't even really expect to do it a second time, but I had some other friends who were going. They kind of thought it was a funny idea. And then those friends have since dropped. I mean, they didn't stay comedians, so they were kind of (laughs) just uh, my muse. Um, (laughs) Or, you know, the the people that peer pressured me into going, and now I'm the one who's still doing it. Um, But I never expected any of that to happen. But, yeah, it was pretty much just a scary thing, and I was like, I'm so tired of having stage fright. I mean, that's something that can affect your life in so many different ways. I was just an extremely shy person. And so I didn't, you know, even I had a professional job and I didn't ever want to give presentations. I didn't want to speak at our conferences. Um, you know, I felt scared about speaking up to like, a waitress, if I needed something you know what I mean? Like I was just Mm -hmm. very, very, um, shy and always second-guess the things that I was going to say to people. And now, eight years later, I probably should spend more time thinking about what I'm going to say out of my mouth.
1: So it really has, you would say, by being a stand-up comedian, do you feel like 100% of your stage fright has gone away, or do you still experience sometime episodes of where you get nervous when being in front of people?
0: Oh, I definitely get nervous if it's a new situation new location if it's a particularly huge crowd or a big opportunity or a tv thing you know the nerves always come back but i think what's changed is that now i kind of celebrate them Mm. it's almost like um it's almost like you know being in a relationship with someone for a long time and then feeling those butterflies again like it's like oh i'm you know this reminds me of when we first got together you know so Mm -hmm. it's kind of exciting because um and it's, it is so much like that. That now I just kind of try to use the nerves to channel them to just make it a good set and feel excited again. It's also totally a drug. So yeah, I mean. when you feel nervous, it's like, oh, here's that adrenaline rush that I used to always get from it. But now it's a little – it's kind of few and far between. And it's interesting because now I kind of know a lot of um, – You know, of course, comics are very small, so I know a lot of comics that are much more senior to me that I think are geniuses and pros and never get nervous. And I constantly hear from people that they still do. Um, So I kind of hope now that it's something that never goes away, but it certainly doesn't rule my life in the same way,
1: Mm -hmm. which is nice. Right, right are there mental strategies or techniques that you learned or currently use uh, with stage fright? Um, Interesting question.
0: Um, I mean, I think really just focusing on channeling it towards being a positive thing is probably my main technique. And then reminding myself that I am prepared. Um, mm-hmm. And that really only comes with A lot of actual preparation you know Um, and I I mean one of the only ways to really achieve that is just to do comedy as much as I can all the time so that when I'm thrown into a new situation or something that would make me nervous then I can sit down with myself and go you know you do this every night it's just another show like you know how to do this Mm -hmm. I don't know how that experience goes for someone who doesn't perform very often (laughs) that would be very (laughs) scary Um, but that's why, you know, anytime sort of senior comics give advice about, um, how to get ahead, it's always just do as many sets as possible all the time. And that's always been kind of my philosophy. And so I really just try to turn it into a positive thing and then, yeah, remind myself that I'm prepared because I do this. And also that no one thing is the one thing. So opportunities come and go. You might get rejected for stuff. I get rejected for stuff all the time, um, but I feel comfortable knowing that when some when the next thing does come along, I will be ready for it because I've been preparing every night.
1: You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, definitely. When you started speaking of you know performing every single night, when you first started, were you performing? every single night or how often at the very beginning of your standup career did you do a set
0: as often as I could I mean there were a lot of mics in San Francisco so I was trying to go close to every night and I had the benefit you know I'm lucky or um, I don't know maybe I was funny but I got booked pretty immediately when I started so Um, yeah, I mean, I tried as much as I could to go to a mic or at least do a show every night. It was a little trickier at that time because I still had, you know, a full-time job, obviously. But, um, but yeah, as much as I, and if I wasn't at a mic, I would go watch a show. Um, you know, I lived in the mission in San Francisco, so there were a lot of shows within walking distance from my apartment. I just tried to at least be involved in some way. And I kind of still try that in LA Where it's like, even if I don't have a show or go to a mic on a particular night. I either work on booking, or work on writing, or go hang out with comics, which is fun, and they're my friends, but it's also kind of like a way to stay plugged in, even when you're not performing, you know?
1: Right, so at the beginning of your career, Mm -hmm. How did how did it go with uh, repeating material? So you're doing stand up a lot. You're doing it every night. Did you constantly keep like every set was new material, or what's like the <laughs> rule? What's the rule on recycling jokes? And when do you know that a joke it's time to let go and move on from?
0: Um, interesting that you should ask that. So when I started, I didn't know anything about doing or starting stand-up at all and this is 2010 so it's not like there wasn't information out there but it was kind of the start of this most recent boom you know and now we're at a point where like if you want to start stand-up you can listen to a million different podcasts or shows including this one about how people started you know what they did in in any city you could choose I mean there's blog posts and there's just a million different resources Um, I didn't have as many of those when I started and I didn't really know at the time for like almost a year that it was normal to repeat material so (laughs) I was just kind of going to mics and either riffing or writing stuff that came to me that day and then when I got booked on shows I would repeat stuff but I really didn't know and no one really told me so I you know it was It was still an exercise in kind of getting rid of my stage fright, so I don't regret the message that I took, but it's interesting to watch, well, especially because, you know, you have a late-night focused show, but it's interesting to watch comics who just started in the past few years who have all of those resources and pay really close attention to these things coming out of the gate with, like, their five minutes or their ten minutes and doing just that for years um Mm -hmm. and it's very weird to me it's fine it's just a different approach you know it also works out for them a lot of the time because they do get those late night sets and they do get you know these tv appearances um you know so what if the rest of us have to do festivals with them for years and (laughs) listen to the same five minutes of jokes i mean there are there are like third year comics that I can literally recite their yeah. top five, you know? Uh-huh. And, and, and even if it's really funny, that's just not what I got into comedy for. That's not the experience that I had. I was really trying to get some stuff off my chest, get less nervous, take risks, do things that were really scary. Um, and I think as a result, like, you know, I didn't get all that stuff that early and, and I still haven't done the late night that I would love to, but, um, but I do know, I'm kind of going back to what I was saying before, that if I get an opportunity like that, that's a short set, and then out of that appearance come more opportunities to perform for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, I never worry that I don't have that time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of kids, I don't know, I feel weird calling them kids, like I'm not that old, but um, <laughs> new comics who are in that position where they're like, oh shit, I got to late night set two years in because I have this perfect five, but now this club's out to me to headline and I don't have 50 minutes of
1: material. Right.
0: And that to me is much scarier than the alternative, which is like, you know, potentially not getting those opportunities because I always want to feel prepared for whatever opportunity I get. So you know, I, I got something very early, but for the most part, I've never, like, I've been comfortable knowing that Anything that came along I was ready for, you know, and I think that's flipped a lot with how much information people have about comedy. Because now people get things earlier and then when they have to deliver on the stand-up part, it's much harder. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I mean, that's the part that gets me out of bed every morning. So it's like I always feel good delivering on the stand-up part, whether the other things come along or not.
1: Mm Now, how often are you writing new material and what is your personal writing style? Are you a hand writer? Do you just type like a one word into your phone? How do you do it?
0: It's a mix and it ebbs and flows, as you can imagine, especially as I'm kind of working on other things. And if I'm like writing on a pilot, then I'm spending a time writing stand up. But um, and then sometimes you just have dry spells and then. You change your environment, you go out of town, whatever, something happens, and then all of a sudden you have a new five minutes. It's really inconsistent, but I try to write something every day, even if it's just a journal entry, just to kind of keep those juices flowing, because it is a muscle that you have to exercise. I mean, the same as, like, when I was singing, you know, if I spent three months not looking at... um sheet music then when I go back into it it's going to feel a little awkward and like I'm just you know my muscles a little weak at it um so I try to write something every day but as far as new jokes it's really all over the place like sometimes it goes on my phone sometimes I write down pen and paper I always kind of have a journal and some and then a separate joke notebook for rough ideas I'm trying to get better about the kind of follow through um you know because i'll forget tags or i'll listen to an old recording and then go like oh that's that's the laugh that used to be in this that section of this joke like i kind of noticed a lull but i couldn't you know couldn't remember what was missing so i'm trying to as much as i can at least document like um you know have a journal of sort of the complete version of jokes as much as anything can ever be complete which is which is never for a comedian, really, unless everybody's um, applauding and running down the aisles at every line. Um, so I'm trying to get better about sort of documenting that. I also just totally forget about jokes. I'll have fans come out and say like, oh, will you do this one? And I'm like, I literally don't remember ever telling that. <laughs> I don't know how it goes. And I have no record of it, which is bad, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, I do get tired of stuff and kind of turn it out fairly quickly but it really kind of depends on
1: my mood hmm. have you ever incorporated your singing abilities in your stand-up abilities with like parody songs or you know uh, silly songs or any type of songwriting
0: no not really I mean I've performed like in musicals and stuff and I mean I guess I of generally been involved in things that where, like, those things overlap. But as far as my own writing, I haven't written any songs, no. It uh, seems like an obvious thing to do, but, you know, <laughs> it's also not that kind of comic. So I think if I came out one day with a guitar and a song, like, people would be very confused. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it, what type of comic would you say you are? If you were to, to describe yourself and your style, how would you describe it? Um, A woman comic. No.
0: Um, yeah. I... <laughs> I don't know. I really, I never know how to answer that question. I guess it's just sort of uh, like life story. I mean, hopefully just an honest one, you know, like I don't play a character. I try as much as I can to have my comedy be close to how it would be if you just had a conversation with me, I mm-hmm. guess. Those mm-hmm. are always the comics that I liked the most. Um, so I don't really know how to describe the style. Hopefully it's, unique. I mean that's the sort of the goal is to not be able to compare yourself to anyone, you know. There's always things that we borrow um unknowingly or knowingly for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Some people just straight up steal. But mm-hmm. um, you know, there's always little style things we pick up that come and go and you'll see kind of certain words and movements like in the zeitgeist and it's good to kinda of notice those things. And that's another, you know, reason I would encourage any especially new comic to go out and see and do as much as you can, because a lot of the time you'll go out in your town and go like, Oh, there's 10 other comics that have a joke about this thing or are saying this word or, you know, are doing this um, segue or whatever it is, you know, like there are styles in LA and New York that you notice. And I try to note those things because as much as I can, I want to not be influenced by them and, Mm -hmm um just sound like myself.
1: Mhm. Yeah, totally. Now you said you've been doing it for uh stand up for you said 8 years, right? Mhm. So what was a moment for you at any point in your career where you really were like I I can do this. I am a stand up comedian and you you knew you had made it in air quotes, you know, made it.
0: I mean, I still don't feel that way. I've never had that feeling. I don't know if that happens for most people because there's always kind of the next thing that you want to do, you know? And I'm not, you know, maybe you're catching me on a bad day, but (laughs) when I woke up this morning, one of the first things that I did was, like, look for day jobs and also look into grad school. Like, I, you know three days out of every week, maybe three or four, I am thinking about my plan B. Um, You know, I'm putting all of my work into stand up and making this a full-time thing, but it still isn't. And I think that that is true for many years that you're a comic and other people perceive you that way. But, you know, you still have to walk dogs and weed tables and watch kids, whatever it is. Um, And it's scary. You know, it's scary to have that instability. And I guess I guess I would get to that point if I were doing it full time and, you know, felt comfortable paying my rent every month, (laughs) then maybe I would feel that way. But having said that, I know plenty of people who are in that position who still don't feel like it's a hundred percent, you know, there's like, I've talked to people like, you know, I think Martha Kelly is a really great example of this, that she did comedy for so long and was kind of under the radar and worked day jobs. And then she got cast on basket and th- and then she didn't have to work for a while, but she by no means thinks that this is like setting her up for the rest of her life. You know, she's already thinking about contingency plans and um, I don't think it's a bad thing to do to be realistic, but as much as you can kind of, um, Stay working 100% on your goals and whatever your dreams are while still keeping kind of one foot in the practicality water, um, I think is a good idea. So, yeah, so I don't know. I haven't made it. I'm not not even close to making it. So, you know, but I don't know when that feeling will happen.
1: Well, then let me ask you this. What has been, out of the eight years, your most proud moment doing stand-up?
0: It's hard to say. I guess, I think when I, I think certainly the first time I ever headlined a club, I felt really proud. I think the first time, you know, recording my album was huge because that's such a huge commitment to the material and the work that I put in up until that day. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it was a mix of kind of new jokes and jokes that were four or five years old that I had kind of when I started. And I think the commitment and the marriage to those jokes to say, I'm going to put you down on a CD and a record and I'm going to sell it and I'm going to be proud of it was a really big moment especially as wishy-washy as I am with my material in general um Mm. and just how you know quickly I abandon things um my jokes I mean not (laughs) not other things (laughs) um you know that was definitely a big moment and I think the first time I really did an hour that I liked all of it and had fun was huge because when you start, you know, you're doing three minutes at open mics and it feels like the hardest and scariest thing in the world. And I always felt like I was going to throw up or shit my pants. (laughs) And (laughs) so realizing, you know, a few years in like, oh, I just did an hour of comedy, Mm -hmm. personal comedy. It was fun. I liked all of it and people enjoyed it and people paid for it is a really huge moment, you know, and I'm still trying to be as grateful as I can for all those milestone Mm, you
1: know yeah definitely now i do want to talk about uh, your podcast who's your god so can you tell me a little bit about the podcast and how it came about
0: sure i co-host it with two other comedians steve hernandez and john michael bond who both uh, grew up christian steve used to be a pastor a mega church pastor and john's dad currently is still a pastor he listens to our show every week and he's (laughs) been on it um And I grew up in the church as well, and I just kind of realized that outside of um, if people tell jokes about it, for the most part, comedians don't really sit around and talk about their sort of deep spiritual and religious beliefs, their reasons for existing, their reasons for staying alive, um, and coping mechanisms very often. You know, it's not something we kind of shoot the shit about when we're, out at a bar or after a show, um, mm-hmm. and it's not something you hear a ton about on podcasts, even ones that go pretty deep. You know, it's like if you listen to WTF, for example. Like, it'll religion sometimes comes up, but for the most part, it's like you know, family stuff and career stuff and romance stuff. Um, and I think it's a really big topic that is fun to tackle in a funny way, and it's a super funny show because even when things get heavy and we've had several people cry and talk about real trauma from the church um you know it's still hilarious and I I love that combination um and you know we had Wanda Sykes on we've had all these amazing people that I've I've never seen in interviews open up about that stuff specifically so it's been interesting for me as someone who's kind of in a I got a place in my life where I don't know that I'm necessarily like a super atheist anymore. My pendulum is sort of swinging the other way. I was really mad at the church for a long time. And now I, you know, I understand it. I understand why people need Jesus, why they benefit from it, why people go to church. I don't think Christians are idiots. I don't think all Christians are racist Republicans, although there are a lot of them. Um, You know, I'm a little bit more open now to people kind of, Making it work however they can because it's really hard to be alive a lot of the time and you know if you benefit from church and and the Lord uh, or whatever religion you practice without hurting anyone I'm at the point now where like that is fine with me. Also, it doesn't matter what I think people are going to do it anyway. But previously, when I was in you know the phase of still being really bitter about my church experience, I. I think I kind of judged people for that, for still being religious. And now um, I'm kind of turned around on that. So it's been interesting to see where comedians lie on that spectrum. Mm
1: -hmm. Do you see, and I mean, you might not, you probably don't, but do you see a lot of comedians who are openly uh, religious? And what I mean by that is like before their sets, you can see them praying and they take it very seriously. Do you see a lot of that?
0: Not a lot before their death, necessarily, although I think that people pray privately. I know plenty of comedians, some of whom we've had on the show, who are openly Christian, openly Muslim, um, you know, devout Jews. Like, uh, I think it happens a lot. I think it just doesn't always come up because other comedians can be really judgmental about that kind of stuff. And there's a real stigma attached to being religious in you know, whatever the bubble we exist in. Um, And I think a lot of people are just jerks about it. So it keeps people from kind of speaking up. And that's been interesting on the podcast because I'll talk to comedians that I had no idea were religious that tell me, you know, they pray multiple times a day, you know, particularly if they're Muslim, um, a handful of times a day. As like, you know, comedians living in L.A. who are like, potheads and drink and whatever still have this commitment to praying five times a day. And it's been really interesting to find that out because I think, yeah, people just don't bring it up because comedians are assholes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I I wonder, too, if they don't bring it up because uh, it, it, it would be like, okay, you know, you've explicitly told me that you're a practicing Muslim, you're praying five times a day. I expect you to talk about this in your stand up. You know what I mean? There's the stigma of, oh, this is your life. And so you're talking about your life. So tell me everything, make jokes about it. And I just don't know. For some people, I feel like that would work. And for others, they might not want to do that.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, and I think also on the other side of the spectrum, there are people who might come to the show or comedians who are, you know, 100% devout Christians who do like the Christian circuit that would also judge those comics who are kind of in the middle, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, the comic I mentioned who is Muslim and prays five times a day but smokes pot, you know? I'm sure he has to contend with devout Muslims to say, like, you're not really devout, you know? You're not really committed to this religion because you do comedy and you say dirty words on stage and you do drugs and whatever. And it's like, I think there are people on both, sides of that that will be jerks about it Mm -hmm. so it's kind of so we've tried to sort of create this judgment-free zone where people can be anywhere on the spectrum of their beliefs that they you know that's what we call it the podcast for whatever you believe in like um but yeah I think you're definitely right that that's part of it
1: well, I think I think it's a very cool idea, and I think you're tackling, it. like you said, it's a it's a subject, it's an area that's not brought up in you know late night interviews or just uh, as you were talking about it, I was like she's right. Like I I never, you never hear, you never hear these topics talked about in such a serious manner and in, in also in such a light hearted way. So I think what you're doing is a very unique and it's very cool. And I mean, that's why you've been so successful with it. Thank, thank you. I appreciate that. And,
0: and I think it's something that's always been kind of one of those things that's off the table, right? When you go to Thanksgiving, you don't talk about politics, religion, or money. Um, and I think, you know, the politics thing has gone completely out the window in the last few years (laughs) that it's, you know, you really see people doubling down and fighting for what they believe in. And even if it means, you know, ruining Thanksgiving or, or not talking to certain family members. So now it's like, well, what else is back on the table? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think money has changed in that way too, that, um, you know, the classes are so starkly divided that, you know, a lot more of us are kind of being, um, transparent about financial stuff. Um, and I think, you know, if religion gets to that point, it's great. And it's, I think this sort of next generation of people who are teenagers now who are kind of socially more liberal than any generation before them who are like, yeah, I like going to church with my family and I believe in God, but I also like gay people, you know, like I have Mm -hmm. gay friends. And they will, I think, redefine kind of how we think about a lot of this stuff and and not be so weird about talking about it the same way that they're not, you know, as weird about talking about sex or sexuality or the spectrum of sexuality. Right. Um, And I think it's only going to get better and like easier for people to believe in things without having to follow this sort of strict set of rules, which has never worked well.
1: -hmm. Right. And without fear of being judged for it or being put down for it, they'll feel more open to the acceptance of others.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. So Amy, uh, I do want to know, as we start to wrap up the interview, I do want to know, um, who is your favorite comedian? And then personally for you, what is your favorite joke?
0: (laughs) Uh, my own favorite joke, or someone else's?
1: It's just it, whatever the first joke that came to your mind is uh, your favorite joke. So whatever that means to you.
0: Oh, um, okay. I missed a little bit of that because I think we got disconnected. But um, I don't know. I don't know about my favorite joke. Um, that's a really tough one to answer. Um, favorite comedian? That's also kind of tough. There's so many people that have kind of influenced <laughs> me that I think are genius beyond belief i think maria bamford is definitely one of those people i think um joey diaz is one of the most charismatic and hilarious comedians i've ever seen like as far as people who i watch and make me really double over and not only double over but make me feel like we don't even do the same job (laughs) they're so amazing at it you know like there's so many light years ahead of me um Certainly Maria, Joey, JB Smooth, you know, Cat Williams, I think is one of the funniest people ever. I guess those are sort of my big ones. You know, Norm MacDonald has been kind of a big deal to me for a long time. I think he's one of the funniest people ever. One of the greatest joke writers.
1: Oh, I completely Um, agree.
0: Yeah, he's the best. And he's
1: a very sweet man. Um,
0: Yeah. Favorite joke? I don't know. I don't think I can really answer that one.
1: Okay. All right, what, do you have a, a joke for yourself that, uh, that you remember writing that might be the top joke you've ever written? In I your opinion? I think,
0: I mean, I think the kind of one that people bring up to me the most and feels like, I guess, the most authentic version of whatever my style is, which I guess, going back to your earlier question, if I had to like sort of sum up what I want to do with comedy in one sentence, it's really to um, kind of like talk about hard things or be self-deprecating in an empowered way. You know, this is like a very, I didn't invent this by any means, but I think the pattern that a lot of my jokes have is, here's a sad thing or here's something I'm gonna say where you think I'm putting myself down And then the twist is that I came out as the empowered person in that story or one in some way. Like that's really, I think, what I'm always trying to pull off is this thing where people go, oh, like she's insulting herself or she's telling a sad thing about her childhood. And then at the end it's like, oh, no, she's an asshole. (laughs) and She's not a victim in any way. So I think something that kind of sums that up the best is a joke I have, which I'm not going to tell because you can find it on the internet, but totally. um, I told it on last comic and it's really a joke about my dad sort of saying something really funny to, or really mean to me in a funny way. And then me joking about how he died really young. And that's also <laughs> something that when I, you know, and then it, and then there's a much more graphic kind of visual about his corpse and it's very dark. <laughs> um, it's very dark. And I try to, make it kind of sound cute and that's something that when i did it on last comic like norm really liked um you know the twist in that and i think that's sort of like the joke people bring up to me the most Mm. and maybe gets the most interesting reaction so yeah it's probably up on my website if you guys want (laughs) to see how it goes it's definitely on my album which everyone
1: should buy (laughs) yeah for sure and my final question, my final question for you is one I ask every single guest. So the question is, if you were to give one piece of advice to someone who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give?
0: Just perform as much as you can, write as much as you can. Try to be nice, be patient, and be proactive. You know, don't be afraid to ask for things, but have some self-awareness about also when you're asking too much and, you know, the way in which you're asking. But in general, there's there's space for everyone, um, allegedly. <laughs> and yeah. If you're funny and nice, things will happen.
1: Mm. I like it. And Amy, uh, if people want to like you mentioned buy your album or maybe see you perform soon, in what ways can they find you online or see you in person?
0: Online, amymillercomedy.com is my website. On Twitter it's just amy miller, amy miller comedy on Instagram and I have show dates on all three of those things.
1: All right, that's perfect. And Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm glad we got to do it and got to make it happen and this was it was great talking to you. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for doing it, man. And to anybody else listening, remember, you can visit us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. You can also find us at our Facebook page at Talking Late Night, and you can find us on iTunes where you can rate and leave us a review. So thanks again to Amy for being on the show. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.